Y'all turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 as we continue this series in the life of King David, the greatest king of Israel until our Lord Jesus himself. And I, we left off last week with David's fall. And today we're going to look at the aftermath. And I just need to start by saying this, and this is going to sound random, but I, I'm going to get to where I'm going, trust me. I like, I like jokes, I like funny stories, I have a good sense of humor, but I don't like pranks. I don't like practical jokes. I knew a couple that used to play pranks on each other every, every uh, April Fool's Day, and I told Carrie, let's not do that, because <laughs> I like being married, I'd like to stay married, you know, it's, it's just, pranks sound funny when you're planning them, and maybe once out of a hundred times it works out perfectly where the person doesn't get hurt, doesn't get offended, uh, everybody has a good laugh, but the other 99 times you realize, okay, this was a bad idea. And that goes for every time I've tried to prank somebody too. It's just, it just doesn't work out. So example, this is not something I was involved in, but I read about it uh, at a plant nursery in British Columbia, Canada. Um, there was an employee who thought it would be funny to change the tags on this certain plant. And the plant was called Autumn Monk's Hood. The, the tag actually said, warning, all parts of this plant are toxic. And he changed it to, all parts of this plant are tasty in soup. Now, hilarious, right? So the, what he said was, when he was confronted later, he said, well, I just assumed the staff horticulturist looks at all the tags, make sure they're right. I thought he would see them and he would flip out and we'd all have a great laugh. But that's not what happened. Instead, the plants went onto the shelves to be sold, and they stayed there for over a week before someone discovered what the tag actually said. In that time, they had sold 17 plants. So you can imagine the, uh, the employees of this nursery, how frantic they were to try to find the people who bought those plants. And some of them they could find because they were purchased with a credit card. They were able to track the people down and warn them. But actually, nine out of the 17, they never found and they just prayed and prayed, please don't let anybody eat one of these plants. And they didn't, they didn't hear about any, uh, any mysterious poisoning deaths, so they just kind of wiped their brows and said, okay, we dodged a bullet there. But again, don't play pranks, all right? It just doesn't work out. You think it's funny, and I know we've got the youth here this morning. This is for them, but it's also for you, all right? But the bigger point of that story is this. That's exactly what the world does. The very first story in the Bible is what? It's the story of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, living in a perfect environment, living in face-to-face -face communion with God himself in a world without sin, without pain, without death. And God tells them, there's only one thing you can't, one tree in this whole garden that you can't eat from. All these kinds of fruit you can sample, you can enjoy, but the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you have to leave that alone because of the day, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the devil shows up in the form of a serpent. In Genesis 3, 4, it says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. You see what he does there? He changes the label on that plant. And we've been doing the same thing ever since. We've been looking at sin and, said, and saying, okay, I can see where that would be wrong for you, but not so much for me, because I can do that, and it doesn't affect me, and it doesn't hurt anyone. So you do you, and I'll do me. Don't tell me what's sinful for me. Now, as Christians, if we've been in, in church at all, if we've read the Bible at all, if we've been discipled at all, we know that that's not the way it works. Just like autumn monkshood is poisonous to everybody, things that are sinful for one person are sinful for everybody. 
Sin is not relative. Morality, according to Scripture, is not relative. Things are right and things are wrong. And yet, even though you and I know that and we can say that intellectually and we judge people who relativize morality, we fall victim to the same lie too. And it comes in a couple of ways. There are a couple of ways that we fall victim to the lie. One, we say, well, sin, while toxic, is just a part of life. I mean, everybody does it, right? I can't completely get rid of all the sin in my life. We're sort of like a smoker who says, well, I've cut down to one pack a day. So, you know, what's, what's the harm really? Or like a person who says, yeah, I know I drink a lot, but I could quit anytime. We rationalize our sin. Yeah, I know I gossip, but everybody does that, and, and nobody's really hurt by that because I'm not saying it to their face. Or I know I've got a bit of a temper problem, but I don't ever hit anyone. I'm, my, my anger is never physically manifested. It's just I just blow my top, everybody moves on. No big deal. We rationalize. The second way we fall victim to the lie is we say, God hates your sin more than he hates mine. Now, obviously, none of us actually says those words, but it's how we live. And let me prove it to you. Okay, I'm about to do a mind thing on you. When I started talking about how the world changes the label on sin, I can almost guarantee at least three out of four of you thought, oh, he's going to talk about sexual sin. Because that's where our minds immediately go. Because we're living in a time post the the sexual revolution in the mid-60s, 50 years on from that, we're living in a time when things which our grandparents wouldn't have even spoken of, today they're celebrated. Things which used to be condemned are now a part of life that everyone accepts and says, yeah, that's the way you live. That's how you express yourself. And, and so we look at that and say, yeah, that's how the world has changed the label on sin. Absolutely, that's true, and, and we see the destruction of that in our culture. But I'm here to tell you, sin is sin. And, and, and whether your sin uh, happens to be in that realm of things or if it's more in the, in the realm of the things you say or the things you think, Maybe it's, maybe it's in terms of, of dishonesty, or maybe it's in terms of ambition or pride. And the truth is, my sin takes just as much of the grace of God to forgive as the sin of a guy on death row. And your sin takes just as much of the blood of Jesus to redeem as the worst person you can possibly name, the, the most homicidal, megalomaniacal dictator. Sin is sin. And it's an affront to the righteousness of God, and it takes an enormous amount of grace to forgive. So we change the label on sin, and David in this story is about to find out there are things that are true about sin that the world won't tell you. There are things that are true about sin that even most religion won't tell you. Things that the world has changed the label on. And let me tell you what those are, and we see those in the life of David today. So number one, even confessed sin has consequences. So last week we looked at David and his fall. David, for those of you that don't know the story, David had an affair with a one-night stand, you might say, with the wife of one of his most loyal soldiers, one of his elite warriors. And in order to cover up what he'd done, he arranged so that that man would die in battle. So it would look like his hands were clean. And then he took the woman to be his wife. And he thought, well, there's a handful of people who know what I've done, but they're not going to talk because I'm the king. I can get away with this. So it's okay. There was somebody who was willing to confront David, and that was the Lord God himself. And he sent his prophet, Nathan. And Nathan goes to David, and he confronts David in such a way that David sees, I have done a terrible thing. And David repents. And when I say David repents, David gave a true repentance. We've all seen the Hollywood apology, right? 
the Washington, D.C., I'm getting up there and reading a prepared statement. It's a non-apology apology that sort of puts the blame on you for being offended, right? I have to say something so you'll move on. That's not what David does. Read Psalm 51 sometime. You'll see someone truly owning their sinfulness, owning the fact that I am a sinner in need of grace. I deserve to die, and yet I'm still alive. David repents, and Nathan says to him, the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. And that's forgiveness. And before I go on with the rest of this uh, sermon, I want you to know it's going to be pretty grim. It's going to sound pretty rough. But God's forgiveness is real. God's mercy is real. We were just saying it a while ago. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more. And that's absolutely true. 1 John 1, 9 says it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't say some unrighteousness. It doesn't say certain sins. It says all unrighteousness is gone and you're forgiven. And that's good news. But look at what Nathan says next. And this is our text for the day. This is where we're beginning. 2 Samuel 12, verse 10. He says, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And you might be saying, wait a second, I thought Nathan said your sin is taken away. Well, well, how come now he says the sword will never depart from your house? Where's the forgiveness in that? The forgiveness is in the fact that David's not going to die. He has taken the wife of another man. That's a sin punishable by death in Israelite law. He has murdered another man. That, again, is a capital crime. He deserves to die. God says you're not going to die. Moreover, and even more importantly, David's relationship to God is secure. God's promises that he's made to David, you will never lack a man on the throne. I'm going to bring about your son and he's going to reign over Israel forever. That's still true. Nothing that God has promised David has gone away. He's still a child of God. He is still in the family. That's forgiveness. But He doesn't take away the earthly consequences of what David did. And this is the hard part for a lot of Christians to handle, for us to wrap our minds around. And over the the course of the years that I've been pastoring, I've counseled with several people who've come to me, and and this this is their struggle. They say, listen, Jeff, I know I did something bad. I, I know I really hurt my kids. I know I hurt my wife. I hurt my friend. But I've repented. But they still hate me. So I thought I was forgiven. What happened? And I have to tell them, God has forgiven you, but he doesn't force other people to forgive you. Or somebody might come to me and say, yeah, I made some terrible decisions in the past and it, it, it damaged my body, but I've repented. How come I'm still getting sick? How come my body is still broken? Yes, God has forgiven you, but that doesn't mean the earthly consequences of what you did to your body are gone. If I go out and get drunk and then get behind the wheel of a car and wreck that car, it's a terrible thing to do. If I stand before the Lord and confess my sin and repent, will he forgive me? Absolutely, without question. But does that mean my car goes from totaled to mint condition? Does that mean that my injuries that I sustain in the wreck suddenly heal? My scars suddenly vanish? Does that mean the people that I injured or maybe even killed, they're suddenly okay? Does that mean that I don't go to jail? No. And you might say, well, why doesn't, God, why doesn't God take away our earthly consequences if we're forgiven? And I don't know because I'm not God and the Bible doesn't address it directly. I will say this, though. When I was in high school and I didn't do my homework and I made a D 
And, and I, I, I went to my parents and I said, I'm really, really sorry. Did they forgive me? Yes, I'm still their son. Did they go to the school and have the grade reversed? No. No, they didn't because they're good parents. Because if my parents got me out of every jam that I ever got into, I'd never learn anything. That's all I can think is God has a redemptive purpose in allowing us to suffer the consequences of what we've done. God chooses not to intervene sometimes, and only he knows why, because he's a good, good father. Even confessed sin has consequences. So Nathan isn't saying, all right, David, God's going to get you. He's saying, listen, you are forgiven, but there's some consequences coming for your family. God loves you. He wants you to know this. He wants you to know when this starts to happen, you start to see the consequences of what you've done. This is not God doing this. This is the natural consequences of your bad choice. And I don't want you to think that you've been banished from God's presence or or forsaken by his love. He still loves you. This is just something you're going to have to suffer. Even confess sin has consequences. The world says you can get away with it, but no one ever really gets away with it. Number two, sin that society excuses is still sin. So David was guilty of of covetousness. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of lying. He was guilty of murder. In that day and in ours, those are seen as terrible sins, especially adultery and murder. But he was also guilty of something else on an ongoing basis that the whole world at that time said was perfectly okay. David had multiple wives. We call that polygamy. David was married to Abigail. We remember the story of how he met Abigail and became her husband. That's a beautiful story. You you read that and you always think, why didn't you just stick with her, David? Because then he married Ahinoam of Jezreel. Then he took Michael, the daughter of Saul, who had left him. He brought her back. Now he's king. He can have who he wants. Um, He married Bathsheba. He He had a harem full of concubines. And we look at that and we say, wait, we thought this was a godly man. How can he be married to all these women and have all these other women he's not even married to? How is that even allowed? It's because the culture of that time said, no, 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 that's okay. That's all right. I mean, he's a powerful man. He, he's making political deals. You know, you've got to marry the, the daughter of the king of Ammon and the daughter of the king of, of Persia if you want to make deals with those countries. We see it in the life of his son Solomon. Solomon becomes king, and one of the first things he does is he marries the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to seal the covenant between those two nations. That made good sense for their country, but he doesn't stop there. Uh, Solomon keeps making deals with other countries and gaining new wives. And then, then again, he'll see that, that farmer's daughter that he likes and this other person down the street that he likes. And before you know it, Solomon's got a thousand wives, literally. Gentlemen, you think it's hard to remember your wife's birthday and anniversary? Do you think Solomon ever got to hold the remote? I hope you like that. That's about all the humor you're going to get today. The culture of that time said, no, no, this is what powerful men do. Besides, wouldn't I do that if I could? Men say to themselves, I mean, sure. It's good to be king. Look at all my wives. Look at all my sons. But God has a different standard. Genesis 2, right at the beginning of the Bible. Therefore, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Two become one. That's God's math. That's the way it works. That, that is absolutely positively the way God designed men and women in their relationships on a physical level to work. And anything other than that is 
a betrayal of his original plan. And you can rail against that. You can say, oh, that's too restrictive. That's ridiculous. Why are we restricted to that? But that makes about as much sense as putting metal in a microwave. You ever do that by accident, right? You're going to heat up some leftovers, but you forget, and you leave the aluminum foil on them, or you have that fork on your plate, and all of a sudden things go haywire, right? Sparks fly. Well, the microwave wasn't designed to heat metal. You can argue with it, but it's just that way. Arguing with it doesn't change the reality. When we change God's standards, even if even a society accepts a particular sin and says, no, no, this is the way you should be, it doesn't change that God designed us to operate differently. And when we, when we change the label on sin and say, because we've advanced as a society and now this is okay to do, it doesn't change reality. And destruction is the result. So let's look at the destruction in David's life. In chapter 13, we read about his son Amnon and his daughter Tamar. Amnon and Tamar were half-siblings. They were children of different mothers. And Amnon saw Tamar and saw that she was very beautiful, and so he wanted her. He knew, she's my half-sister, this can never be allowed in Israel, but he just couldn't control himself. So he lured her to his house, and he raped her. And this is a story in chapter 13, which is very vivid, not graphic, but very vivid. It says that Tamar wore uh, this, this garment that all the king's virgin daughters wore. The scholars say it was probably this long-sleeved, uh, beautiful gown. And it, it just marked them out as, hey, this is someone, this is my daughter. She's saving herself for the right man. And, and as, as Tamar went over to see her brother who had lured her there under the pretense of being sick, and she realized what he had in mind, she begged him not to. She said, she said, and I quote, as for me, where could I carry my shame? And when the deed was done, she tore the garment. She probably tore the sleeves off as her way of saying, what I had, what I had to give has been taken from me. Chapter 13 says she was a desolate woman the rest of her life. You think about this. Here in the last three or four years, one of the big topics of conversation, one of the big news stories has been how we're just finally starting to comprehend what a horrible thing it is for someone who's a, who's a, a victim of sexual abuse, sexual assault, rape. And, and we finally started to identify this as a, as a problem, that this is not something to be laughed off. This is not something to be swept under the rug, that, that this is a terrible crime. And yet 3,000 years ago, the Bible tells the story of this woman and identifies the devastation she experienced because that shows you God knows. And if you've experienced this, and I guarantee you there are people in this room that have, sad to say. Just know that God knows what you've experienced. God feels the pain you feel. God weeps for you. And you will have justice in this life or the next. See, the great thing about God is his justice always wins out in the end. And you can hang yourself in your jail cell so you don't face consequences. You're just expediting the time you face your real consequences. Because justice of the Lord always wins out. And I'm not saying that this terrible thing that Amnon did to his sister is a direct result of the fact that David had many wives. But ask yourself the question, what if David had had one wife and, and eight or nine kids with that one wife? Don't you think he would have been a better father? What if, what if the home of David, the home of the king, was not a home where there was this sibling rivalry between 
uh, children of different mothers, and well, our dad loves your mom more than he loves my mom, and so I don't like you, and back and forth it would go. This kind of incestuous lust, this violence that occurred. Ultimately, Absalom, the brother of Tamar, took her into his home and, and kept her there for the rest of her life. She lived as if a widow. Absalom was furious with his brother Amnon, but he kept quiet. He waited two years until everybody thought it had blown over and then invited all his siblings to his home and stood up and murdered his brother Amnon in front of everyone. I'm not saying that David's polygamy was directly responsible for that. I'm saying David's choice to follow a sin that the world said was okay created a family environment where those kinds of things are much more likely to happen. And I'm saying also that every generation has blind spots. For the Israelites of that time who were so much more righteous than you and I in so many ways. I mean, we're talking about people who wouldn't even write the name of God down because they were afraid it would break the third commandment. And yet they tolerated polygamy and in fact celebrated it. And we say, how could they be so blind? Every generation has its blind spots. Think about Christians in this part of the United States 200 years ago. You read their letters to one another, and it's so obvious they were steeped in Scripture, and it's so obvious that faith in God was such a huge part of their lives, and they came out of that second great awakening that that made our country so focused on the Lord for so long, and yet so many of them believed that it was perfectly okay to enslave a person who looked different than you. Oh yeah, that's natural. In fact, I love being Southern Baptist, and I I plan to be one until we get to heaven where it won't matter what we are. But it saddens me that the reasons why there was even a Southern Baptist Convention is because our ancestors thought slavery was okay and other Baptists didn't. And that's terrible. And then I think about my own, the the generation of my own grandparents and great-grandparents and how those people, many of whom I knew, many of whom are the reasons why I became a Christian and discipled me as a young man. And so, so much of what I know about Christ, I owe to them. And I saw so many good things in them. And yet they thought it was perfectly okay to say, Well, only people who look like me should go to my church and go to my kid's school and live in my neighborhood. And we look at that and we say, that's terrible. In fact, I'll just say for the record, if you have that kind of attitude, you're never going to serve as a a deacon or a life group leader in our church. That is a sin that you need to repent of. And yet, 50 years ago, in this part of the world, it was seen as okay. And it makes you ask the question, what are our blind spots? Fifty years from now, when our descendants in Christ are going to look back at us, what are they going to look back and say, how could you be that way? How could you think that way? Didn't you even read the Bible? That ought to be a humbling thought. But I I want to say that for this reason. Don't rationalize your sin by saying, no one I know thinks this is wrong, so it must be okay. That is flawed logic. Remember when you were a kid? And, and you said, well, mom, everybody's doing it. And mom said, everyone is not your mom. I'm your mom. Everyone is not your God. The Lord God, the righteous one is. So if you're a teenager, and maybe it's true that all your, ki- all your friends think it's perfectly normal to hate your parents and to make fun of kids who aren't like you and, and to hook up with people of the opposite sex anytime you can, but that doesn't make it right. There's a terrible cost to all those things. And maybe you're in a business environment where it's considered standard operating procedure to inflate certain numbers and to bury certain other figures, but God hates dishonesty. I want you to remember, some of you are old enough to remember, 
a lot of the leaders of WorldCom and Enron, people who went to jail, they were devout religious people, leaders in their churches. And it wasn't okay what they did. And it destroyed a lot of lives. Or maybe there's people here today, in fact, there probably are, who are getting away with certain things because no one has enough, uh, I think the Jews call it chutzpah, to confront you. Maybe you get away with some bad habits, with some rude behavior, with some selfishness, maybe even addiction, and no one ever confronts you and you think, well, it must be okay. No one says anything. Sin that society excuses is still sin. Number three, hidden sins are sometimes the most destructive. You think about it, David was probably really proud of his son Absalom. Even after the murder, he forgave his son. He understood, hey, a terrible thing was done to your sister. Sometimes we lose control. Absalom, according to chapter 14, verse 25, was the handsomest man in all of Israel. Had this long, flowing hair. And he had his, his father's charisma and dynamism and charm. And so he just naturally won people over to his side. And what that, what that beautiful exterior obscured was the fact that deep down inside he had a couple of really dark sins. One was selfish ambition. He had to get to the top and he didn't care what, who he hurt to get there. And number two was a vengeful pride. He had to have the last word. And so for years, Absalom lived in the shadow of his father and no one knew what he was really up to. He was winning over the hearts and minds of the people of Jerusalem. One by one, little by little, he was appealing to people right where they lived. He was getting their hearts. And when he knew that he had the loyalty of a critical mass, suddenly and without warning, he stepped up and claimed the throne. And imagine being David. Imagine being a man who for 10 or 15 years was on the run in your teens and 20s when, when you, were, you were a fugitive from justice and then you're king for 40 years and now as an old man, you have to flee again. Once again, you're a fugitive from justice in your own land, this time from your own son. David and his loyalists have to flee Jerusalem, and then they turn around and fight. There's a battle for the throne of Jerusalem, and, and the, the army of Israel says to David, David, you cannot fight with us. You cannot, because if you die, we've lost everything. So you stay here. We'll take care of it. And David says, okay, I trust you, but just do me this one favor. He says this in the hearing of all his troops. He says, listen, I hope you fight. I hope you win. But please, please don't kill Absalom. Whatever you do, deal gently with my son Absalom. There's still hope. There's still a chance. There's still a, a hope that he and I can be reconciled. I've lost Amnon. I've lost Tamar. I, I've lost so much, I can't lose him. And the battle begins, and these crusty old warriors fighting against these fresh troops, they win in a rout. As the army of Israel is conquered once again by the army of David, and in the midst of the battle, Absalom is riding a mule and he rides under a tree, and his beautiful hair that he's so proud of gets caught in the branches of the tree, and he's left suspended in midair. Joab, the commander of Israel's army, finds him and kills him. And so we read this story of David hearing the news. I want you to listen to this because this is one of the saddest things you will ever read. And behold, the Cushite came. We don't know this man's name, but he was an Ethiopian who was on the side of David, running from the battle to give David the news. And the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? You see what he cares about? I don't care that I'm king again. Is my son okay? 
And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would that I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And you hear the heartbreak. Something's happened that cannot be undone. Years ago, I took a defensive driving course because I'm a conscientious person and I want to be a good driver. (laughs) And maybe there was another motive too. One of the things they taught me there was that when there's a wreck, it's almost never one person's fault. I mean, even in the classic case, you've got a kid who's looking at his phone while he's going down the highway at 70 miles an hour. It's not all his fault. It's also the fault of the guy who pulled out in front of him thinking, oh, he's got time to slow down. He'll hit the brakes. And it's the fault of the person who's right in the kid's blind spot so he can't get over. It's, it's a multitude of factors that contribute to a terrible accident. And that's the case here too. Yeah, David's Sin with Bathsheba started this awful snowball rolling in his family. His polygamy had created the environment where things were set so that terrible things might happen anyway. Amnon's lust, rape of his half-sister. But then it was that hidden sin that no one saw. Absalom's vengeful pride, his selfish ambition. That's what eventually led to the deaths of thousands and thousands of innocent Israelites for a useless civil war. Your hidden sins can be the most destructive. I read about a woman whose three-year-old daughter got a credit card application in the mail. True story. Here's this letter from your ex-credit card company. You have qualified. So she thought it would be funny to fill it out. Filled it out in crayon. At the bottom, she wrote a little note. P.S. Please give me this card. There are toys my mommy won't buy me, and I want to get them for myself. And she sent it in, just for fun. And believe it or not, in six weeks, her daughter, her three-year-old daughter, received a credit card with her name on it. Because sin is always willing to run you a tab. Sin would gladly give you enough rope to hang you, and it'll give it to you on credit. But God is different. God tells us the truth about sin because he loves us. And not just that, God came into this world in the form of a man so that he could pay our debt for us. He paid our debt with the cost of his own life. He paid our debt. He paid it all. So why are we still living in sin? Why are we still in bondage to it? He brought us forgiveness, yes, hallelujah, but he also brought us freedom. Not that we can just go out and immediately never feel temptation again, but it's, it's the truth that once we taste grace and once we follow him, the closer we get to him, the less appealing sin is. The closer we get to him, the more we see the goodness of that life and the less we want to go back to the life we once had. He has come to give us freedom, salvation, not just from hell, but from ourselves. Have you tasted that freedom yet? Are you living in that freedom?